Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Let me read this. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and on the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Let's pray. O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Adam used Beethoven as an illustration for his introduction, and so I see no reason why I can't do the same, except uh, whereas Pastor Adam used uh, the composer to illustrate his point, he used Beethoven himself to illustrate his point, I want to use one of Beethoven's pieces. One of, one of my favorite pieces of Beethoven's, and indeed in classical music um, at all, is his Symphony Number no. 7 in A Major. Symphony Number no. 7 in A Major. I would encourage you to, to look it up sometime when you have about 10 minutes uh, to spare just to listen to a song because that is how long the song is. And uh, it is incredibly uh, complex and diverse. And until the, the end of the song, it doesn't even feel like you are listening to a single piece at all. For most of the piece, it feels like a handful of separate songs that, that seem like they're about to crash. So they're running from opposite directions, and then at the last moment, they mold into one another and begin to dance together. And so there's this tension throughout the whole time uh, as you're listening to this song. You're, you're never really at ease as you're listening to the piece because you have no idea what's, what's going to happen next. And so uh, the, the movements are all so sharply distinguished from one another and the piece feels a bit chaotic right up until the seven-minute mark. And then there's this abrupt buildup into the work's crescendo. And when it reaches that high point, when everything slows down and the deep drums come pounding in and the overture that was at the beginning of the song now comes blaring in with intensity you find as you're listening to this piece that you have stepped through the point of total integration. And here all, all the, the seemingly random parts of the song throughout the rest of the song suddenly make sense. It makes sense that they're there. And all those separate movements come flooding in, as it were, into this point of integration and cohesion is brought to the whole song. It is 
the, the single most affective piece of music that I can think of. This, this part where it reaches the crescendo makes me emotional every time I listen to it. And I, I choose to talk about Symphony Number no. 7 in A major because the song reminds me of Zechariah. Zechariah is uh, one of the strangest books in the Bible. It, it, it feels incredibly disconnected and chaotic. You don't really know what's going on. It's really interesting in terms of where it's placed in uh, redemptive history. Zechariah was uh, a contemporary of Haggai, which means that he was ministering during the post-exilic period. So this is after the people of God have been taken into exile, and it's during the period of their return to Jerusalem, and then the process of rebuilding the, the temple and reestablishing the city. And so this, this book takes place at the tail end of a, of a long and grievous exile. It takes place towards the end of, of Scripture's first act in its drama, before the, the curtains close, before Act 2 begins. And structurally, Zechariah is split up into five pieces. They don't really seem to mesh well together. Right, so first you have the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And then the second section is a series of eight night visions that stretches from chapter 1 into the end of chapter 6. And these, these night visions are deeply symbolic and frankly, they are bizarre. They're, they're, they're the first thing that as you're reading, it just strikes you and you don't know what to do with them. And then the third section is a short narrative where God speaks through the prophet to some messengers who are sent to Zechariah to hear from the Lord. And the Lord informs them that his forgiveness is, is coming and that his, uh, their, their coming prosperity is on its way. And that's chapters 7 and 8. And then the last two sections are two prophetic oracles, chapters 9 through 11 and then chapters 12 through 14. And these two prophetic oracles are notoriously difficult to interpret because, as one scholar puts it, it is composed almost entirely of a kaleidoscope of divine threats and promises regarding the future of Jerusalem, the nations, and the cosmos, but often having no clearly identifiable historical reference. I like that, that word picture. It's a, it's a kaleidoscope where all of these images are kind of morphing into one another and you don't really know what's going on. And so because of the fast-paced chaotic nature of the book, it doesn't really invite a casual, passive reading, right? As if you're going to read uh, through a story in Genesis and you're just sort of listening as the story is unfolding. So it doesn't invite that kind of casual reading, nor does it invite um, a hair-splitting, very, very um, um, careful sort of uh, word diagramming kind of, sentence diagramming kind of reading as if you're going to read through um, an epistle of Paul's and you take one pericope at a time and just sort of dissect the sentence. It doesn't really invite that kind of reading either. It rather invites a kind of reading that's more like marinating or absorbing, right? You just sit in the book. And that's what I've been doing for the past two weeks is I've just been sitting in Zechariah. And as the, the themes whiz by and the timeline is jumbled up, the past and the present and the future are all meshed together. The book feels like Symphony Number no. 7 in A Major. The concepts rush toward one another. 
Like they're going to crash, but then they mold into one another and transition. And all the transitions are unintuitive at first, but there is a crescendo. There is a integration point that brings all of the various themes together, and it is a person. He is the branch, the root of David, the Messiah, the future king, priest of Israel, and the world. He is Jesus Christ himself. The book of Zechariah is about the multifaceted aspects of the Lord's kingdom. It's about the people in the Lord's kingdom, the temple, their worship, their faithfulness, their prosperity, their distinction from the rest of the world, and ultimately it is about their king. But before we see how all of these themes cohere in this king, let's briefly survey some of these themes. So I want to look at, look at the book of Zechariah through the lens of, of several themes in the book. And the first is this theme of the Lord's return. And we read this in the passage that we just read from chapter 8, didn't we? That God is returning to his people. Now this means a lot of things that we're going to discuss briefly as we go on, including the restoration of the temple and the overthrow of God's enemy and his removal of wickedness from the land and much more. But I don't want us to miss the major theme of simply the fact that the Lord is returning. Now this is significant, especially in light of Ezekiel chapter 10, which tells us about God's departure when, when his glory left the temple. Now this, of course, does not mean that God was not there in any sense, right? It, it doesn't mean that he wasn't there in his sustaining and sovereign sense, Right, his exhaustive sovereignty and omnipresent sustenance of all things of the universe is in part what it means for him to be God. Right, so he's he was there, he was there sustaining the universe together. He is the Lord of hosts, after all. But in Ezekiel 10, we see that in response to the persistent idolatry of the nation, the glory of the Lord his sacred and blessing presence departed. And so Israel had been left feeling the, the absence of, of his glory ever since. And so they're feeling that, that God is gone, his glory is gone, his presence of blessing is gone. But now, at the end of their exile, a tired and exhausted people, a people worn by decades of fasting and mourning and weeping, now get to hear the good news of the Lord's return. They hear, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 1, verse 3. They hear, and I will be to Jerusalem a wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Chapter 2, verse 5. They hear, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Chapter 8, verse 3. Just think about what comfort this must have brought them. What relief, what joy. After all of those years of darkness, the sudden burst of light. And kids, if I could just speak to you for a minute. Many of you may be too old to, to uh, be experiencing this lately. Uh, maybe you haven't experienced this in a while, but this is kind of like 
Kids, when you're uh, scared at night, you're in bed and it's dark and you're scared at night. So what do you do? You call out to mom and dad. And before long, the door opens and maybe the lights come on. And then suddenly your mom or your dad are right there. Think about how that feels. So you're scared, you call out to mom and dad, maybe you've had a bad dream, and then mom and dad are suddenly there. Doesn't that feel so good to have your mom and dad there comforting you? Well, that's what it's like for the people of God here in Zechariah. That's what it would have been like for them when they heard the good news of the Lord's returning. So that's the first theme, the Lord's return. Theme number two is the overthrow of God's enemies and the restoration of his people. A part of what it means for the Lord to return to his people is for him to assume his role as Israel's jealous husband, right? As her defender who executes judgment on her behalf. So he says in chapter 1, verse 14, that he is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Another analogy utilized in Zechariah is one of a shepherd who tends to his flock with protective care. The idea is that God is coming to protect his own and to fight off their oppressors. But amazingly and mysteriously, Zechariah, when he's describing this reality of the Lord overthrowing his enemies and restoring his people, in the the process of making these claims, he makes some baffling observations about what this will look like. Because he seems to affirm at one and the same time, that God's enemies will be overthrown, that his people will be restored, and that those who were his enemies will join his people. So he says in chapter 2, verse 7, Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plundered for those who served them. You will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Seems rather straightforward, doesn't it? The Lord comes to restore his people and in the process, he judges the enemies. He judges the nations. But then he says this, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So God liberates his people by disarming disarming his people's enemies. But then he brings those enemies into his fold. How gloriously mysterious What is he doing? Well, we'll return to this theme later on. Theme number three. I want us to notice how God casts out wickedness from the land. How God casts out wickedness from the land. Look at chapter five with me. I want you to have this passage in front of you and we can read this together. Chapter five, beginning in verse five. This is one of the night visions in the second section of the book. 
God's word says this, Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what is, uh, sorry, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover, the, the leaden cover was lifted. And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust down the basket, uh, thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted the basket uh, between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Now, this is a very strange story, obviously. And it's very symbolic, right? So there's this basket where where this woman who is wickedness is in the basket. And God sends two messengers to, to take this basket and take it out of the land to take it where it belongs. And in this In this strange story, God is promising that he's going to remove wickedness from the land. And I want us to notice that he's not promising simply that he's going to remove wicked people from the land. It goes much deeper than that. He is going to remove wickedness from the land. Now just sit on that for a moment. Is that not the very definition of paradise? No wickedness from the land. And yet, if we sit on this thought long enough, we realize it's a mystery because we know ourselves. So the question comes up, how can God do such a thing? How can he remove wickedness from the land without removing every living person from the land? Because your home can be wicked free until you and your family walk into it. So how is he going to do this? How is he going to remove wickedness from the land? Now, this is the question we're going to return to later on. That's the third theme. God casts out wickedness from the land. Theme number four, and finally, I want us to notice the Messiah. Theme number four is the theme of the Messiah. All throughout Zechariah, a mysterious figure has been emerging. He's called different things in different places of the book. He's called the branch in chapter three, verses eight and nine. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, the Lord says that he's a king. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in chapter 13, he's called a shepherd. And he's called a shepherd who will be struck. And when he is struck, his sheep will scatter from him. And then in chapter 6, verse 12, we read about him being this mysterious priest king. And there's this confusion about whether there's one figure or two figures. And are they the same person sitting on this throne? So it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. 
Now, what are we to make of all of these different images? Right? There's a branch who will establish the kingdom forever. And he will be a king, but he will also be a priest. And he will be high, but he will also be lowly and riding on a donkey. And he will be a shepherd, but he will be a shepherd who will be struck. Right? Seemingly disconnected snapshots that don't seem to connect together. And then further... What are we to do with the seemingly collisional nature of the rest of these themes? Right? How does, how does this theme of the Messiah, which is already really mysterious and confusing in Zechariah, how does this theme cohere with the rest of the themes in the book? Are they all random? Right? Do they have nothing whatever to do with one another? Or are they connected? And the answer is yes, they are connected. They all cohere. And they all cohere in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Davidic priest king. He is the branch. He is the donkey rider. He is the struck shepherd. He is the Lord of hosts, the husband to his bride, who are the people of God. He is, Jesus Christ, is the crescendo of the book of Zechariah. He is the integration point. Guys, some 500 years after this book was written, Jesus arrives and he does the unthinkable. He brings all of these discursive themes together in himself. You see, the Lord returns to his people in the person and work of Jesus. The word made flesh who tabernacled among his people, says John 1.14. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the temple of God. And we who are, as Pastor Adam pointed out last week, the living stones of God's holy temple, we are, as Pastor Adam pointed out, the temple of God. But we're the temple of God by virtue of our union with Christ, who is our Emmanuel. So in Christ, God returns to his people. In Christ, God overthrows his enemies. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, says Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 22. And this is why Revelation 19 portrays Jesus, Jesus, the one who rode on the donkey. Revelation chapter 19 portrays this man on the day of the Lord as the one who, quote, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. In Christ, God overthrows his enemies. But in Christ, the overthrow of God's enemies the restoration of his people, and the transformation of enemies to friends is all a single work. Right? So cha Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In Christ God overthrows his enemies and restores his people. In Christ, the wickedness of the land is cast out. Right? This is the work that he has begun right now and he continues to do so right now as he transforms sinners into saints. He's, he's in the process of removing wickedness from the land and he'll ultimately complete this work upon his return. But we should ask ourselves, what is the foundation of this work? 
the ground upon which he casts out all wickedness from the land? And the answer comes from Zechariah chapter 12. So go ahead and turn there. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. I want us to read this passage together. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the land of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Shemites by itself and the wi- their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Chapter 13, verse 1. And on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So in this passage, we see that that Yahweh and the Messiah will be pierced. And when they who pierce him will look upon him, they will look upon him in grief. And they will experience by virtue of the work of the spirit of grace that God pours out on them. They will experience the flowing stream from the house of David to cleanse them from sin. We read this repetitive phrase by itself and their wives by themselves. And it tells them that this repentance is genuine and thorough. It's not simply a formal matter. People down to the individual will be struck to the heart. Now this may be kind of confusing, but we should think where else in scripture have we seen this play out to a T, brothers and sisters? Is it not in Acts chapter 2? When Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, declared to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And what happened with this sermon? When when Peter preached that sermon, when he lifted high Jesus with his words so that they could see him, they could look upon him whom they have pierced, what happened? Scripture tells us that they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what, what do we do? They're cut to the heart and they want to know what they do. And so Peter told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. In the next chapter of Acts, at a similar point in a similar sermon, Peter says to repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Streams of forgiveness 
and cleansing. Brothers and sisters, this is how the nations stream into the fold of Christ. We, like Peter, hold him up with our words. We declare Jesus. We hold him up. And when we do, those who God pours out the spirit of grace and repentance will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will grieve over their sin and what it costs. They'll be cut to the heart and they will, by the Spirit of God, come to Him to receive the cleansing of forgiveness. In Christ, in other words, all the themes of Zechariah's kaleidoscope cohere. They integrate. In Christ, the Lord returns. In Christ, God's enemies are disarmed and ushered into His fold. In Christ, wickedness is dealt with once and for all and removed from the land. And kids, Emmaus kids, let me just speak to you for for a moment because this all is important for you too. Did you know that you can be a part of God's kingdom too? It's not just for, for the adults. It's not just for mommy and daddy and their friends. Jesus is the one who will bring you into God's kingdom if you come to him. And if you do, kids, the sin that you commit that makes you so sad, right, when you treat your brothers or sisters poorly, or when you disobey mom or dad, or when you do something that you know you shouldn't do, that's, that's sin. But if you come to him, if you pray to Jesus and ask for him to pay for all that sin, he'll do it. You can, you can come to Jesus and you can give your sin to him, and he'll take it away from you. And when he died on the cross, he was paying the price for those sins. And when he rose from the dead, he was proving that he really, really did pay for them. So kids, if you ask Jesus, if you come to Jesus and ask Jesus to pay for your sin, he will. And he will give you a brand new heart. He'll give you a brand new heart that loves to obey God. And kids, you'll still sin, you will. But God promises That if you come to him like that, he will help you more and more to say no to your sin. Jesus loves you that much. He loves you enough to be your hero and your protector. And I am sure, kids, that if you have any more questions about this, your mom and dad would love to talk to you about it. The book of Zechariah is inviting us into this integration point that is Christ, but not in a manner that you may expect. It's not in the way that that it can be very common for us to talk about accepting Christ. It's not exactly that you are invited to make Christ the center of your lives. It's more the case that Christ is the integration point of everything, and he is inviting you into him. All things are from and through and to him. History culminates in him. It is his people who will be restored. It is his enemies who will be destroyed. It is his remnant that will come flooding in from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. It is his kingdom that that will persist for all eternity. So when we are invited to Christ, we are invited to swear allegiance to him and him alone. And we're invited to be in a way absorbed into his purposes. And this means, Christian, this means that Christ cannot be dragged around for you to use. He can't be taken and co-opted to something that is lesser than him. 
He cannot be reshaped in order to fit the mold of the mascot of whatever cause you insist upon. As if to say, if Christ were here bodily, he would surely be a part of this group and not that one. Right? Or if Christ were here bodily, he would be an advocate for this cause or this political party or this economic proposal or this reform legislation or whatever. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not a decoration. He is not a decoration that you can use to adorn whatever cause you prefer. In a very important way, Christ is not yours at all. Rather, you are Christ's. You are his. You belong to him. So when we, when we look at the book of Zechariah for all its bizarre imagery and symbolism and the messiness of the timeline and whatever else that makes it hard to understand, one thing is for certain. The Lord Jesus Christ is subject to no one. He is bringing all things under subjection to him. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. So he can't be dragged around and used like a trinket. But this also means that we cannot split ourselves down the center with part of our allegiance sworn to Christ and part to some other Lord. Right? Part of our allegiance sworn to, to Christ and part to the God of social acceptance or whatever else. Right? Christ must have our all. And this is why, this may be hard for some of us to hear, but this is why Christians should have nothing whatever to do with identity politics or cynical cancel culture or call-out culture, the, the tendency of doing public shaming on social media or whatever other platform. Christians should have nothing to do with that. They should have nothing to do with self-flattering virtue signaling or the games of short-sighted tribalism or political power grabs or co-signing godless movements and ideologies. You guys, we are a peculiar people. We are a kingdom of priests, a holy nations. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ Almighty, which transcends all political parties. We live in this world. So we are, we are thus inescapably uh, forced to wrestle with the same things that our non-believing neighbors wrestle with. And we must, we must, we may not check out of very, very important issues but the way we wrestle with them must be markedly different from the rest of the world because we belong to another kingdom. We don't look up to the court of popular opinion to validate or invalidate us. Guys, think about this. Every movement or idea that does not integrate ultimately in Christ will be cast away by him. We therefore do not look up to any man or movement or idea or tribe or bandwagon to validate us. Instead, we look up to him. We look up to him whom we have pierced. We look to Christ. We do not bring him into our agenda. We accept his invitation to be a part of his agenda. So church, let us labor to display this reality in our lives and in our conduct, especially our conduct on social media. Let us identify ourselves as the body of Christ a people who are defined by our allegiance to Jesus. Let us testify to our impoverishment apart from him. Let us remember the death of Christ. Let us remember that he was pierced for our transgressions and punished for our iniquities. And we are no better than the them of whoever it is that we're against. Let us remember 
Let us remember that he was punished for our iniquities and let us declare by faith that by his wounds we are healed. Let us declare our utter confidence in Christ and Christ alone, especially in this time. Let us do so as a unified people, as a people that has a, has a far more profound commonality in Christ than any of the real differences represented in it. And let us live this way in the hope of our sure future when Christ will return to make all things new, when he, he will realize his kingdom on earth in its ultimate expression. And if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're here watching online, maybe somebody sent this to you, you're not a believer in Christ, let me speak to you for a moment as his ambassador. I can invite you on behalf of Christ to him. I invite you to him. And you can, you can acquiesce to that invitation right now. Even right now, even today, you can call out to him whom you pierced with your sin. And you can beg him for the cleansing grace of his forgiveness and the assuring grace of his righteousness. And I promise he will give it to you. If you come to him with the empty hands of faith, to embrace him as your only hope, he will not turn you away. He will accept you. And if you have any questions about that, please let us know. We would love to tell you about our friend Jesus. And so you are invited to come to him. You are invited to come to the integration point of the universe and find your purpose realized thusly in him. Let's pray. Jesus, you who are our king, we know this. We long to be fit for your kingdom. We tremble at the thought that you have welcomed us into your kingdom. Fill us now with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Pray that you would use this sermon to edify your church as you see fit. Spirit, bind us together with unity, and knit our hearts together in love during this time that we might be a kingdom, a kingdom people above all else. We ask for these things in the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the name of our priest, King Jesus. Amen. Emmaus, may Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, our perfect prophet, priest, and king, bless you and keep you this week and beyond. May you find in him a king worth swearing utter allegiance to. And may you be liberated from the cares of self-obsession as you live for his glory and joy. May our one holy triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sustain you in this by grace for his glory and your joy. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.